We turn in God's Word this evening to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. We will be reading verses 45 through the end of the chapter, or at least the end of the section. Forty-five through verse 54 then this evening, although our text is to focus on 45 through 50. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us this evening. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. As far as the reading of God's Word, let's again bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the written Word. We pray that tonight we will hear it, that we'll take it and apply it to our hearts and take it home with us. We pray that Pastor Bob, that you give us wisdom, that you give them the strength, that you give them the uh, courage to preach it honestly, but we actually realize that we will never totally understand the emotion involved here. It's beyond our grasp, but we hope that we pray that you'll help us to eventually understand it every time we hear the story. We thank it's just in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Providentially, uh, this morning in our high school Sunday school class, we were dealing with uh, the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, not only uh, the doctrinal errors that are made, but also uh, uh, in terms of simply uh, biblical misinformation that is often handed out. It raised a lot of questions, a lot of good questions, and I hope uh, those who did a lot of that question raising are here tonight as I... Uh, alluded to the fact that actually our message tonight delves into many of the questions that are, were being asked as far as uh, that which is happening here upon the cross and 
that which was and is taking place here at the death of Jesus. So we want to look at this with three main points tonight. First of all, it appears that these words he's calling Elijah, in order for us to appreciate those words, we need to understand the preceding events. They set the stage for the words that are spoken. So first of all, the preceding events. Secondly, then the words that are expressed. What, what's being talked about around the cross at this particular time? What is the conversation? This morning we had the privilege of, of looking at perhaps the first words that are spoken around the cross, and that's those words of the placard, of the inscription that Pilate had written over the head of Jesus. These appear to be some of the last words that are spoken around the cross as well. And then thirdly, the final cry of Jesus, because what they are saying leads us to Jesus speaking once again in a series of events unlike no other time ever in history. So first of all, the preceding events. One of the things that Matthew tells us about, and the other gospel writers included as well, is that there was a period of intense darkness. Verse 45 notes that. That is one of the things that precedes now these people saying, he's calling Elijah. This event of this darkness sets a tone, it sets a stage. It would certainly have been a reminder of judgment. Certainly of the type of judgments that Elijah was famous for. The calling down of fire, for example, on Mount Carmel as being one. The great rainstorm that pursues him and Ahab back to the capital of Samaria. That intense darkness of a growing and storm. But this is no storm, is it? We are told that this lasted from noon to 3 p.m. We are told that by Luke, as a matter of fact, that what actually happened is that the sun's light failed. That's how Luke describes this darkness. This is no eclipse. An eclipse does not last for three hours. Secondly, it's not an eclipse because we know where we're at. We're on the 14th day of Nisan. We are at Passover. Passover always occurs at a full moon. It is impossible for the moon at this particular juncture in the heavens to be blocking the sun. In fact, they are directly opposite of one another. So to explain this away in terms of a storm, to explain this away in terms of an eclipse, is simply pure folly. One of the things that is interesting to note is that this event was of such significance and took place over such a wide area 
In fact, we are told in one of the gospel accounts that this was not just over the land, but this was over the earth. It is of such significance that many unbelievers have written about this during this particular time. The church father, for example, Origen and the church father Tertullian both mention and, and recite for us that literature that came from roughly that period of time that acknowledged something very odd, something very unique. Of course, they're not attributing it to a miracle of God in any way, uh, but neither do they say this was an eclipse. It goes far beyond that. This event has an impact. You, you experience an event like that, it's going to have some significance on that which comes out of your mouth. At least one would think so. But as the darkness draws to an end, there is a second event that takes place. For three hours, roughly, the cross has been silent. Jesus has spoken nothing. Now, prior to this, there were, there were statements coming from him. There was all sorts of activity taking place. There around the cross over the past several weeks. We've been noting much of that. But now, in the midst of this intense darkness, all there is is stillness. Quietness. One gets the feeling that because of the darkness, there isn't much talk around the cross either by others. Oh, I'm sure people are questioning, what's going on? What's happening? These are probably whispers. When suddenly, now think of it, it has been intensely dark, and suddenly, piercing through that darkness is a cry, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? A cry that helps us to understand, does it not, the depths of the agony that Christ is experiencing during this period of time. Words that, that were clearly found in Psalm 22 verse 1. There is no doubt that the words are the same words. Words that are uttered, we are told, with a loud voice. Certainly not the voice of one that one would expect after nine hours of crucifixion. Certainly not with the volume, certainly not with the clarity, and yet there they stand. 
Christ Jesus is experiencing hell. And the Heidelberg Catechism goes through the, the order of the Apostles' Creed and it comes to the line that says, why does the creed add he descended into hell? The answer that is given is this, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Now why has he delivered me from it? Because he experienced it for me. For you. That's what's happening here. In the midst of this three hours of darkness and in the midst of this cry that pierces through that darkness, hell. The being forsaken by God. See, hell is not having no knowledge of God, hell is having the full awareness of God. But in his judgment, hell is being forsaken, knowing that there is no grace. This is what Christ is experiencing, brothers and sisters, for you and for I. He descended. He experienced the depths of hell. Now, it doesn't mean that, that after, you know, he's taken down from the cross, you know, for three days, he's down in the, the abyss of Satan's abode in the midst of, of a place that, that Christ himself would call Gehenna. No. No, because he told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's where Christ is going. That's where the soul of our Lord and Savior is going upon his death. His body is going to a grave, but his soul is going to glory. When you and I stand and confess he descended into hell, this is it. This is the moment. This is the time. This is the descent. This is the agony. And it's out of these two things, out of the darkness and now out of the cry, that words, as light comes back upon the scene, human voices are now heard once again. There's talk being spoken around the cross. Words are being exchanged. Begins with bystanders, we are told. Verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. What are these words that are being spoken? Well, first of all, perhaps we could simply ask, did they misunderstand? Did, did that word that's coming out of Jesus' mouth, Eli, Eli, did, were they thinking, well, he can't quite get Elijah out, must be he meant Elijah. Were, did they just misunderstand? Is that what this is? Is, is it just confusion on their part? All they too have experienced three hours of darkness. Lights coming back on the scene. Are, are they a little bit confused about what is happening and what's taking place? I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that even though there might be some tad, small amount of similarity between the words, these folks know full well. That's not what's going on. This is a purposeful, you see, turning away from the words of prophecy. They know full well. He's crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? They fully know this language. In fact, what we're beginning to understand more and more is the fact that, that more and more of these people actually, although they were more familiar with Aramaic, understood Hebrew very well. This is not a misunderstanding. This is not a confusion. This is not miscalculation. There is a purposeful, intent behind their words. So the second question we could say is, were they mocking? Oh, yes. Once again, we see them twisting and perverted, their perverted minds, taking a snippet of that which comes from the mouth of Jesus and saying far different than what he meant. Think of that which we had this morning. Did Jesus actually ever utter the words, I am the king of the Jews? Oh, but they put those words in his mouth, did they not? Did Jesus actually say in regards to the temple, I will destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days? Are those actually the words, or are they twisting? Are they distorting? And here, as we find Christ upon the cross, even moments before his death, they're still at it. The Jewish belief, you see, was that before the Messiah were to come, Elijah would make another appearance. Elijah the prophet from of old, from the Old Testament, the Mount Carmel 
Elijah, the Mount Horeb Elijah, the miracle worker Elijah, the confronter of Ahab and Jezebel, the drought declarer Elijah. He, in his person, was going to come again. That was the Jewish belief. That was the Jewish concept. That's what they were expecting. Christ can't be the Messiah. Jesus can't be the Messiah. There's been no Elijah. Oh, but once again, they've purposely ignored what he has said. Go back in your Bibles from this passage to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Peter, James, and John in chapter 17 are up on a high mountain with Jesus and we have the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appeared on that mountain. Go to verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples ask him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him what they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood. Get this. They finally get something. Something finally clicks with them. What clicks? The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. They get it. But these people of Matthew 27, they don't get it. They don't get it that John the Baptist was the Elijah who had already come, the one who had preceded the Christ. So here they are, Jesus dying on the cross. Hey, if you're the Christ, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Oh, that's what you're asking for. Oh, you're looking for some final confirmation in your deluded mind up there upon the cross that you really are the Christ. You still aren't giving it up, are you? He's calling Elijah. Imagine that. At this stage, what's he got? Ten minutes? Fifteen, maybe at the most, maybe twenty? He thinks Elijah's going to come now? Yeah, like that's going to happen. See, this is the mockery. This is the scoffing. That even at this stage, there is still no sympathy. But then, If we put the gospel accounts together, 
There is another cry that comes from the cross. A parched cry. I thirst. Someone runs and gets the sponge with the sour wine, fulfilling that which we find in Psalm 69, that they gave me sour wine to drink. They put it to his lips. They wet it. Perhaps the, the individual, if we read the account, it sounds like it, because it says that they gave him some. And it sounds like maybe that individual was going to leave that there for just a little bit longer. And somebody says, no, take that thing down. Don't you be the one to assist him. Don't you be the one to help him. Let's not aid him in any way, shape, or form. Let's not even put a sponge to his mouth. Let's not even give him some sour wine to drink. Nothing. He deserves nothing. No little bit of relief at all. Nothing. Let's see. You're not Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. Wait. Hold off. Don't do anything else. They will afford him no relief. They will not back away from their ridicule, their mocking. Even after he has experienced the agony of hell, they still don't relent. Even after they have witnessed three hours of darkness in the most unusual of settings, they still do not Relent. You see, my friends, unless the Holy Spirit opens a heart, this is what we do to Christ. This is what the unbelieving world today continues to do to Christ. They laugh. They scoff. They ridicule. There is no amount, you see, of, of painting the picture of this day on the cross that will bring about any sympathy from their cold, dead heart. They will ridicule and scoff all the way to hell. Unless the Lord softens warms and invades that heart.
he's calling Elijah. Words of unbelief. Which brings us to verse 50 and beyond. Here is the end of the scoffing. Here is the end of the ridicule. Here is the end of the mockery. At the foot of the cross that day. For now there are two statements uttered from the mouth of our Savior. It is finished. John tells us that, John 19, verse 30. It is now finished. I am now laying down my life. No one's taking my life from me, John chapter 10. I am laying my life down. So I commit, I commit into your hands my spirit, Father. Two words from the cross that remind us that it is finished. Not only our salvation, not only the completeness of our atonement, but the ridicule, the mockery, the prophecy of Psalm 22. It is finished. And so now, Father, I can commit myself into your hands. And notice what happens. Matthew doesn't want us to separate, you see, this whole section. He wants us to see this as a unit. He wants us to see this as a completion that all ties together. The darkness, the cry, the mockery, the fulfillment, the finished, the committing. To what? lay before you briefly four events that now take place. One, the veil is now torn. The moment of his death, see we get this little paragraph break, don't do that. Don't, don't see this as paragraph because when we see paragraph in, in our minds we think time. We think there is a differentiation here. No, read it together. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. At the moment of his death, that which was veiled, that which was in the dark, has now become open. There is now the way, the truth, and the life. There is now but one way to the Father. The atonement has been accomplished. Nothing can keep us now from the presence of the Lord. The veil is rent. Darkness 
dissolved into life. Secondly, we are told that Matthew, according to Matthew, and the earth shook. There is an earthquake. The entire universe is affected by Christ's death. All of creation. We are reminded by Paul in Romans chapter 8 that even now the creation waits and groans in eager expectation. The creation that also has been affected by the weight of sin. The creation itself now responds with a shaking, with a shuddering of itself. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? See, if you think about the earth shaking as a shuddering, you know how you shudder sometimes? You know, some event happens, something, something takes place, and, and you just get this, this thing down your spine, and you just go, oh. Something affects you, something strikes you. And you shudder over the significance of the event. Here is the earth. At the moment of Christ's death, the earth shudders. At the significance of that which is taking place. And the rocks were split. Remember the triumphal entry? Remember the aftermath? Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. I tell you this, that if they are quiet, that the very rocks will cry out. See, how many disciples are crying out at the cross right now? How many disciples at the moment of Jesus' death are saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior! None. Nothing but stilled silence coming forth. Just people putting their coverings over their head and walking away in great silence. If my disciples are silent, then the very rocks will cry out. See, that's what's happening. These split rocks are testifying of what? Well, think about the Old Testament. Think about every time in the Old Testament when we have Moses striking a rock. What happens? The water of life comes forth. That's what these rocks are testifying of. The one who has died is the water of life. This death is life. 
This is where life begins. Life not for the moment. Life not that you will thirst again as Jesus told the Samaritan woman. But life for all of eternity. Come drink the water of life. Come parch your thirst in this life-giving stream. Even Christ himself. Now all of that for you and I is interesting. We take it in and go, wow, that's pretty neat. But what captivates us in this passage? That which captivates us in this passage is that which we really cannot understand, can we? Because we are told at the moment of Jesus' death, tombs are open. And the dead of the saints rise. Now on one level we get this. On one level we, we see the spiritual dynamic that is going on, don't we? Christ's death brings what? Life. It's what the picture is all about. The veil is rent. Bringing not death, the curse of the law, but life, grace. The earth shudders, not out of death, but out of the significance of life that is being poured out. The rocks are split because of the life-giving water that is now available. And the tombs are open. So we get it. Life, yes, a picture of our own life. The picture of our own resurrection. The picture of the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But now we're alive in Christ. Why? Why are we alive in Christ? Because he died. Because Jesus Christ died, we are alive. Else we'd be still dead in our trespasses and sin. So we get this. We understand this. Verse 52, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. You ever wish sometimes there was a period rather than a comma? Because that I get. That I can explain to you. That I grasp. But you see, there's a comma. They were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, now, I'm sure you got questions. So did they stay in tombs for three days until the resurrection? They were alive? And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
Well, at first glance, that appears to be what it is. So we've got people stuck in tombs for three days. But you know, that's not the way it needs to be read. What it's telling us is they did not enter the holy city until after the resurrection. They didn't go into Jerusalem until after the resurrection. They were raised, they came out of the tombs, but they don't go into Jerusalem. See, for some reason we think these are the people who lived right near Jerusalem. Why do we think that? Why, why, why do we automatically make that connection? Well, these are the people who are also buried in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. I didn't read that. Why would not these be those from Nazareth? Those from Caesarea, those from Bethsaida, those from many of the other localities where Jesus was. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What's going on? Jews demand a sign. A sign is going to be given to them. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be. Jesus has raised people before in his life. Do you think it's impossible for him to raise people in his death? No. You know how I know? Because you and I are those very same people. Because you and I, too, have been raised to life as we await the coming of our Lord and Savior. And when he comes, what does Revelation tell us we're going to do? We're going to enter the holy city as well. We're going to enter into the new Jerusalem. We're going to enter into his presence as well. See, this is a picture. This is a foretaste. This is a foreshadowing of that which happens to everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. We're raised spiritually to life and we live our life testifying of that which Jesus has done until Christ comes again and we're brought into his presence. Father, thank you again for your word, for its reminder to us tonight of the deep, deep love that you have for us. Of that love of 
your son to bear the agony he did for us. For the love of your spirit for us in making us alive in Christ, in raising us to newness of life, for making us new creatures in Christ. We sing, even at the cross, we sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. And God's people say, amen.